This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Hello, I'm Philip Nice. This is Trumpet Hour, and yesterday was Thanksgiving Day, and we hope you had a meaningful day and that you had and have many blessings to be grateful for. We talked about that a little bit on the Wednesday show, and we will talk about thankfulness a little bit at the end of today's show. Today is Friday, so that means this is the Week in Review edition of Trumpet Hour. I'm here in studio with Jeremiah Jacques, who watches the Asia region each week. Thanks for having me. As well as Andrew Miller, who watches Anglo America. Hello. And through video conference by the agency of Parker Campbell, one of our producers, we are connected to the Trumpet office in Edstone, England, and to Richard Palmer, who watches the Europe region each week. Good afternoon. And Mihailo Zekic, who watches the Middle East. It's a pleasure to be here. Mihailo, let's definitely start with the Middle East this week, but give us your update, if you would. Well, Israel is consolidating its positions in Gaza since the ground invasion started. What's been in the news quite a bit is Israel's cleansing, shall we say, of the Al-Shifa hospital compound, collecting together as much material that Hamas left behind there, including weapons caches, exploring the tunnels, etc. That continues. There's still some people that deny it was a Hamas command center, but that's getting harder and harder to deny. Turkey is also reportedly in talks with the United Kingdom and Spain about purchasing Eurofighter Typhoon jets. There's reportedly the S-16 sale the United States has promised Turkey may not happen, and so Turkey's looking to alternate buyers for Air Force technology. And on Wednesday, the Pope hosted a Palestinian delegation, and the Palestinians afterwards said they heard the Pope call what Israel is doing in Gaza a genocide. The Vatican is denying this, but we're hearing from multiple Palestinian sources that is what the Pope actually said. There's a lot we don't know. We don't know what the context was. We don't know if there's anybody from the Vatican side willing to admit that such a thing would have happened if it did, which it most likely did. But if it's true, Pope Francis isn't known for his pro-Israel rhetoric, but this would be a, a new low, shall we say. All right. And then the main story that we've been talking about coming out of the Middle East. Well, as I'm sure plenty of our listeners know about as of today, there is not a ceasefire, but a pause in place between Israel and Hamas, a four-day pause specifically to allow a foreign aid to come in to have a break from the fighting and most importantly for a prisoner swap. Details seem to be confirmed, then unconfirmed all of a sudden, but from what we can gather to the best of our knowledge, Israel is supposed to get 50 of the hostages taken by Hamas back in exchange for releasing 150 Arab prisoners, some of them from East Jerusalem, some of them from the West Bank. The U.S. government said they expect three Americans to be released with that. As far as the hostages are concerned, released by Hamas, just women and children, no military-age males as of this point. Last time I checked, the hostage swap or prisoner swap hasn't happened yet. It was supposed to happen at 4 o'clock Israel time. Once this goes out on the air, that could have very well been changed. There's a few reasons why this is interesting. One of the big ones that caught my eye was that this was mediated by an unlikely middleman, Qatar, or as some people like to pronounce it, Qatar. It's a Persian Gulf state that's wealthy, has a lot of money, it punches above its weight geopolitically because of its finances. Qatar has been one of the biggest finance seers of Hamas for years now. We're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars going back years and years and years now. And they've sponsored other care groups as well, including Al-Qaeda. They've supported the Taliban, etc. It looks like an unusual person to be trusted by both sides to mediate a conflict like this. But Qatar is one of the few foreign partners that Hamas is willing to talk to and take seriously. And I should also mention the Egyptians and Americans have been contributing to mediation as well. But from what we can tell, Qatar has been the main negotiator or mediator. Because Qatar is not necessarily a rabidly jihadist, we're going to kill everybody in our site, Islamic State like, say, Iran is, it makes it a little bit more palatable for Israel to deal with. And even the infamous Semi-state news agency Al Jazeera has a Jerusalem office legally operating under Israeli law. So 
Qatar is more and more turning into a country that more people in from both sides of the conflict are looking to as somebody they can trust, as somebody that can make things happen, as somebody that if you want something to take place in unlikely circumstances, passing it through Qatar and through the channels they have is the best way to do that, which again shows just how much of an oversized influence some of these small Gulf Arab countries can have. So this has obviously been making headlines everywhere, the fact that this conflict is on a pause, a temporary ceasefire. But you've zeroed in on Qatar's role uh, rather than some of the other details. Why did you zoom in on that? Well, it's no secret. Israel is trying to make friends with more and more countries in the Arab world. Qatar is not one of them. Israel would open up relations with them if they could, if for nothing else to be normalized among the rest of the Muslim world, Qatar doesn't want that, although they have thrown a few olive branches to Israel, like allowing flights from Tel Aviv into Qatar for the World Cup last year. But prophetically speaking, we expect Israel to start trusting its Arab neighbors, even some of them with some more, shall we say, unsavory dealings with terror groups like Qatar. Way back when a big topic of conversation on this program and elsewhere was the Abraham Accords with Israel making deals with places like Bahrain, the United Arab Emirates, Sudan, Morocco, etc. A lot of people said at the time this is like really good. And of course, it is good that peace is being made. But we at the Trumpet were also looking specifically through the lens of Bible prophecy, these kinds of alliances to end up backfiring on Israel to become a trap Israel walks into essentially there's a prophecy in Psalm 83, which discusses a group of Middle Eastern countries coming together to that the name of Israel may be no more in remembrance. Specifically listed among them are the Ishmaelites or the ancestors of the modern Arabs in the Arabian Peninsula today, including countries like Qatar, the UAE, Saudi Arabia, etc. And it's these countries more and more we're seeing Israel reach out to to form alliances with or at least partnerships with. And th in this case, we're having the war going on in Gaza. I'm sure there's a lot of other people that Israel would have liked to have mediated this conflict with. But instead, they turn to the Qataris and they're the ones that are able to deliver. Again, the Egyptians and some other people helped out. But it goes without saying that there's been fighting right now and it's Qatar that was able to get both sides that didn't want to stop fighting to stop fighting at least for a time or two. This shows Israel's trusting Qatar, even though they partially created this mess by funding Hamas. If anything, this is probably the most blatant example of these Arab countries can't be trusted and Israel trusts them to their own peril. I think there are a couple of other important aspects of this story. I think one is, once again, we've seen the pretty much outright anti-Semitism of the media in the way that they have covered this. This is being portrayed as Israel releasing 150 Palestinian hostages, kind of like there's this moral equivalence that Israel has Palestinian women and children prisoners. And this is how they're often talked about. Even in things like CNN and New York Times and BBC, they're releasing women and children in exchange for hostages. CNN even, they produced this whole emotional segment on a Palestinian mother whose daughter was among those scheduled for release. They had this tearful mother saying, well, she's a child. She's so innocent. Let's literally a quote from the mother. The truth is that her innocent little girl tried to stab a 19-year-old Israeli policeman. And CNN went the entire segment without stating that. Somehow that was not deemed important enough information Every single person that's being released here is a criminal, if not a terrorist. You hear about the children that they're releasing. These children are 17 or 18-year-old people who have tried to stab or shoot someone. So there's outright anti-Semitism on display there. And I think in some ways, though, I think we're not going to get the full picture. And this is my other point of this ceasefire and what it means for perhaps another week. Because you know, I, I read a, a morning brief this week where I titled it, Will the Hamas Ceasefire Lead to Peace? And in that morning brief, I was mostly aiming at those in the West that kind of see this ceasefire as a four-day ceasefire that hopefully will lead to a longer ceasefire that will lead to the end of this conflict and, and peace. And the point I made in that trumpet brief is that that is fundamentally wrong, that peace never comes from compromise with terrorists. And I quoted from a few things that Herbert W. Armstrong had wrote after the Entebbe raid, 
where Israel absolutely refused to compromise with terrorists. And he just had some great insight there on just whatever we're talking about, overcoming personal sins and evil, overcoming evil in this world. It never comes from compromise. At the same time, if this is Israel has their foot on Hamas's neck and Hamas desperate for an extra four days of life, surrenders 50 hostages and the fighting resumes and Israel can force more hostages out of Hamas and more. I, I think that is a bit of a different picture. And we'll have to wait and see, I think, just exactly what Israel's attitude behind this is. And is this compromising with evil or do they have Hamas at gunpoint and are forcing Hamas to give up their hostages? I'm seeing people I respect and columnists I respect on both sides of, of that. And I think we'll have to wait and see to see exactly what Israel is doing here and how much strength they're bringing to bear in this, what is really this fight against evil. You mentioned the Trumpet Brief. If you haven't subscribed, go to thetrumpet.com slash brief. And Mihailo, you mentioned here in your notes to me a couple of articles that our listeners can go to. Deadly Flaw in Mideast Peace Deals at thetrumpet.com. Deadly Flaw in Mideast Peace Deals as well as a sponsor of terrorism, America's new close friend. That's a sponsor of terrorism, America's new close friend. So thanks for that update, Mihailo. Um, major news. I mean, remember, listener, we had world-stopping terror, horror on October 7th committed by Hamas and supportive Palestinians. And if you've started to get used to the fact that that happened, don't. Then we had the immediate and wicked and ongoing support for Palestinians and Hamas specifically, that anti-Semitism just raging that you referenced there, Mr. Palmer. And now that they've actually gone into an extremely dangerous war zone to clear out the threat of Hamas to get back the hostages, it appears that they're going to get some hostages back. But as you say, we have to withhold judgment, but still judge it on the basis of clearing out the evil itself, right? So Richard Palmer, you Jumped in there. You've also got a major news event in Europe that we need to cover this week. Uh, give us a little rundown first of the other events, then we'll get to that major news event. So the European Union this week voted for federalism. They had a non-binding vote calling for treaty change within the European Union that would set up basically a massive transformation towards the EU becoming a super state. It would end veto power for, for various countries, which is... It sounds technical. It would be one of the biggest steps Europe could take towards a super state if they would make that happen. It would establish a defense union, including military units, so it would pave the way for a European army. Now, the EU is not democratic. The European Parliament is basically a debating society to make them look democratic. They don't have the power to bring this about. But the fact that this is getting a majority within the European Parliament really does tell you something and that there's growing support for this. Watch for that support to continue to grow. It's going to take a few more crises, I think, to to bring this about. It's not going to happen while there are 27 nations within the European Union, and it's just too hard to get them all to agree to it. But certainly, this is the direction that Europe is prophesied to go in, and I think we can expect that to move in that direction quite quickly. We've had a fair bit of news here from the UK. We had a new budget this week. The government tried to push the narrative that they were cutting taxes. Really, though, they've by holding tax thresholds the same, you know, the point at which you start paying 40% tax and uh, not raising them in line of inflation, it's actually a very big tax rise and UK tax burden is at uh, an all-time high. Uh, another consequence really of the money printing uh, that went along with COVID and we're seeing cause and effect. We embraced not just Britain, a lot of people, some very foolish policies during COVID. In the UK in particular, we printed money to pay people to stay at home and do nothing. We're paying for this now. And really, the bill has not even begun, has barely begun to become due. And a lot of the other stories, they all revolve around migration. And I think the main story also revolves around migration. Uh, Germany on Saturday, I think it was, they had a, a big football match, Germany versus Turkey, in which the entire stand was booing the German team and cheering for Turkey. It was a shocking thing to the German psyche to see people that with Turkish origin that were born in Germany, that grew up in Germany, they were still, they were booing the home team. And this has triggered a lot of discussion about the role of immigration in Germany, the role of assimilation. 
that Germany needs more pride in its own culture, needs to instill that into migrants and led to a lot of very interesting conversations within Germany. Uh, Ireland last night, there were pretty big riots in Dublin, 500 people or so going around torching a bus, a car, a tram. This was in response to a stabbing of a five-year-old. The It was rumored this five-year-old was stabbed by an Algerian immigrant. Those haven't been confirmed, but the media has not been reporting the ethnicity of the stabber. So it seems very likely that it was an immigrant. And then we had UK stats this morning from uh, the UK or immigration stats from the UK. I think this puts them in context well. If you look at US net immigration in 2022, it was 1 million people. And that is was huge, and that's a migrant crisis, and that's rightly gotten a, a, a lot of attention, at least in the right places, maybe not in mainstream media, in the US. For the UK, the figures show that in the latest one-year period that we have figures for, it was 750,000 people. So this is a country one-fifth the size of the US, but we've got three-quarters of the net migration. If you think there's a bad migrant crisis going on in America right now, it's many times worse in Britain. And I think a lot of people were shocked. You look at the graphs of net migration into the UK and it's a hockey stick. Yeah, this is off the charts compared to what we had before. So uh, a lot of countries around the world being transformed through immigration right now. And you mentioned that your main story has to do with immigration. When you told me what it was, I'm like, okay, this headline is not from a few years ago. This headline is from this week. This figure was making a lot of headlines a while back, then he disappeared. Now he's back with a vengeance. He is. Het Wilders is the winner of the Dutch elections. He pulled off this pretty shocking victory. I think he surprised a lot of people. Certainly, he had a kind of a last-minute surge in the polls, but it wasn't the predicted result for the longest time. So he became the largest party in the Netherlands. And again, yeah, if you've not heard of Het Wilders, you know, I remember him like you from, I think, the 2000s uh, and his movie Fitna. And he was refreshing, I, I found him back then, where you, you had 9-11 and you had this problem of radical Islam and nobody would talk about it. And certainly if people did talk about it, it was kind of like, well, there's absolutely no connection between radical Islam and the Quran. And they were denying any connection between violence and the calls for violence within the Quran or anything like that. And Het Wilders had this video that no, I think YouTube took it down. Britain's parliament was going to screen it and it got shut down. I think he was, I think Het Wilders was banned from the UK, if I remember correctly. It was a, it, the video Fitna was a huge deal. And a lot of people tried to censor it before cancel culture was big in the news. And it exposed Islam, really, and what's in the Quran. And I think woke a lot of people up to, the danger of radical Islam moving into the heart of, of Western Europe and the danger posed by just this ideology and even this religion. And you know, that's not gone away. We've got a quick clip here that we can play you from when he was campaigning last time around, you know, five years ago or so, where he was talking about the dangers of Islam. 11% of Muslims in the Netherlands, that's 100,000 people, twice the size of the Dutch army. Let me finish my sentence. And they think it's justified in the Netherlands to use violence in the name of Islam. If you are not willing to see that, you are in danger. And then I think you can see why that kind of message, in the context of what we were just talking about with Mihailo, you know, the, the, the riots that you've had, after Israel's invasion of Hamas, the way that capital cities across the world have been taken over by essentially pro-Hamas protesters, why all of a sudden Wilder's rhetoric really, really resonated. And he pulled off this shocking victory. You hear this kind of rhetoric coming a lot from places like Eastern Europe, like Poland or Hungary or, or whatnot. I think a lot of people sort of box themselves into thinking that this kind of anti-migration, we need to restoration of national pride, this kind of thing could only take off in Eastern Europe. Most of the West, for the longest time, either doesn't even have this kind of politics, or if they do, they've found ways to work around it. There's always been exceptions to that, like Georgia Maloney in Italy. But when we're talking about the Netherlands, we're talking about the poster child for what modern European life is supposed to look like. You know, marijuana is decriminalized. The current head of the conservative party in the Netherlands is a Turkish immigrant. You know, the idea of the software worker that sips lattes at Starbucks and invests in green technology, 
the Netherlands was that, and that was what many people in the European Union wanted the rest of the European Union to look like. So if the heart of a progressive Europe can take this turn, that means all of Europe is up for grabs. It's not just a Dutch problem. It's going to be everywhere. I appreciate Mihailo's metaphor because I used the same one in a Trumpet Print article a few months back in our September issue, Europe's Altered Personality, about how we do tend to look at the European as a vegan metrosexual, as I put it there. And that is fundamentally changing. And I think the Netherlands is the most dramatic example of that this year. But this is one of the big trends for the past decade. But it's really accelerated in 2023. It used to be that this was a path to doing better than expected in elections. Now it's a path to winning elections. And I think this has been where this story has been stuck for the past 10 years or so, where parties have reached enough support to make headlines and even to gum up the works of their traditional politics. But not they've not broken through enough to really come into power. We're seeing that change in kind of countries around the fringe and, and in the regional level. But this is one of the biggest examples of that on the national level. Now, there are still some hurdles before Hetfield has become prime minister. He may not become prime minister. He was by far the biggest party, did a lot better than everyone predicted. He doesn't have a majority by himself. And in fact, he'd be looking at a three or four party coalition. And as Mihailo pointed out, one of the people that he kind of needs as his coalition partner is a Turkish migrant. That's not a combo that works easily. And a lot of these other people, they've previously indicated that they're not keen on serving under Wilders. Some have completely ruled this out. But it's really hard to see how you do without him. If you want to not have Wilders as your prime minister, you're looking at a four-party, left-wing, right-wing coalition with people with contradictory parts of their platform that opinion poll after opinion poll have shown that nobody wants, that none of the party bases of any of these parties want. And I think if they do that, you're just paving the way for a Wilders landslide much further on. So his path to power isn't certain, but it's very hard to see how they keep him out. I think it's also worth mentioning the environmentalism side of this too, that you've got the Farmers Party, this brand new party that are a major part of the electoral calculus here, this absolute collapse in support of the last Dutch coalition because they were pushing suicidal environmentalist policies. This, when you look at what is animating European voters, that is another significant factor, that they're having their own economies destroyed. And that, again, the mainstream won't talk about this. And so they're going towards the fringe. So Islam is a factor. Radical Islam is a factor. It's not going away. And people are starting to respond to it. Fitna came out in 2008. And here Wilders was a factor at that time. It seemed to be much less so over the past few years. And now that shows that the people of the Netherlands are going to respond to to what's happening to the country. We don't know how. We don't know exactly what's what's ahead for them. But uh, it just shows that this is not going away. And Europe is gummed up, like you said, in this kind of situation where there's enough support for people who want to push back against this idea that multiculturalism and globalism are here to stay. So, yeah, look for a more muscular Europe. I, I think that's what you're getting at. That's what you were getting at in that article. Absolutely. I think this is where Bible prophecy becomes essential. Mr. Nice and I have quite a lot of respect for Hurt Wilders. I think he is a very courageous individual. I think it is very easy for people to be looking at this and cheering what is happening in the Netherlands, cheering what is happening everywhere in Europe. And I think in country after country, these type of leaders are standing up against you know, real problems from immigrants, real problems from Islam, real problems caused by the radical environmentalist movement. Uh, and it's easy to see this. And I think a lot of people in America see this as part of the same movement as Donald Trump. You could bring in the election that we saw this week in Argentina as well with Millet, this, again, fringe outside figure that's not really part of that country's mainstream. He's a complete discontinuity with this radical left Peronist kind of cycle that you've had going on in Argentina, that it's very easy to cheer all of these movements. You look at some of these movements in specific countries, though, there is reason for great concern. You look at some of the alternative for Deutschland and the deliberate mirroring of neo-Nazi rhetoric and the deliberate minimization of the Holocaust, the fact that the AFD is a fundamental reinterpretation of German history that completely minimizes World War I and World War II, that minimizes hundreds of years of other older negative aspects and 
pushes this whole reinterpreted vision of German history in which America is the bad guys, talks about American concentration camps and things like this. You know, Eisenhower is a mass murderer, uh, a fundamental reinterpretation of history. You look at Giorgia Maloney in Italy and the fact that her party grew out of Benito Mussolini's party, that it's a grandson or party of that. There's a direct line of descent there. There's very, there is reason to think, okay, well, actually what's happening is maybe a little bit different to what we're seeing in Donald with, with Donald Trump. And, I, and a little bit, there are some disquieting things there. This is where, once again, the mainstream media does a massive disservice because by constantly pointing to Donald Trump and Benjamin Netanyahu and anyone they dislike as Nazis and far right, they minimize this. They mask the rise of, the, of real groups that have links to fascism that are going on within Europe. And people look at the AFD and they look at Maloney and say, okay, they get called fascist, but so does Donald Trump. Donald Trump's plainly not fascist. That's probably a lie. They're hiding what's going on. So much as I respect Hurt Wilders, like it or not, whether it's his fault or not, his rise is part of this growing trend within all of Europe. And the Bible tells us then it adds to this warning that you get by looking at what they're saying and looking at history to tell us specifically, we're going to see a change in personality within Europe. We're going to see a new muscular Europe. We're going to see a Europe where people ultimately look and say, well, who is likened to this power? Who can make war with him? That it's going to be a power that shocks the world by rapidly invading other countries. And there's going to be a military buildup to deal with that. There's a conflict coming with Islam and with Iran in the Middle East. You can see Herd Wilders rise absolutely in direct line with that prophecy. So bring in Bible prophecy, and there is a very real warning that we have to understand behind this personality change in Europe. So, listener, watch what Europe is becoming. Remember, Europe has been strong before. I would point you to that article that you mentioned, Mr. Palmer, Europe's Altered Personality. You can get that at thetrumpet.com, Europe's Altered Personality. Jeremiah Jacques, we have time for a quick rundown of events from Asia and then the main story that we want to focus on. Yeah, first a story about Chinese operatives in the United States. This story actually happened last week during Xi Jinping's visit here, uh, but footage began to surface this week showing protesters, Tibetans, Uyghur Muslims, Hong Kongers, Falun Gong practitioners. People from these groups protested Xi's visit. They had banners saying the Chinese Communist Party is enslaving our people, things like that. But large gangs of men appeared and attacked those anti-CCP protesters. These were very well-coordinated groups and very likely coordinated by the Chinese Communist Party, and they were violent. At least 40 of these anti-CCP protesters, most of whom are Americanized citizens, but they were physically assaulted by these thugs. Some of them even had to be hospitalized, so pretty serious injuries in some cases. It's the kind of thing that we got used to seeing in Hong Kong, in the years before it was fully subjugated by Beijing, the CCP would dispatch its thugs to beat up pro-democracy protesters there. But this time we're seeing this on U.S. soil in America. You know, we have the right to protest in America. That's enshrined in the First Amendment. But the CCP doesn't tolerate protests against themselves. And so we're to a point now where even on U.S. soil, they will use violence to shut their opponents up. So just very brazen to see this and very cowardly for the U.S. to allow CCP thuggery to be happening here. Then another story here about North Korea. On Tuesday, the North fired a satellite into orbit. This violates a range of sanctions on North Korea related to ballistic missiles that they're not allowed to fire. But the satellite apparently gave Kim Jong-un some eyes in the skies and not even a full day after the launch, state media published some photos of him looking at images that they said were taken by this satellite. And these images were of American military bases in Guam, including Anderson Air Force Base. And Kim was quoted as saying, North Korea needs more satellites now to give the army abundant real-time information about the enemy. So, you know, we don't hear as much about the rocket man these days, but that doesn't mean that his aim to destroy the U.S. and South Korea has diminished in any way. Then another story here that's a follow-up to a development we mentioned last week about Russia illegally pushing immigrants from Africa and the Middle East into Finland, across its border into Finland. The Finns were stunned to see that happening last week because it is a weaponization of migrants. And this week, 
Russia continued this practice, and Finland has now closed its border with Russia. But a really interesting report came out Wednesday saying that might have been Russia's plan all along. Last September, when Putin instituted a partial mobilization for his war against Ukraine, hundreds of thousands of military-aged Russian men fled the country to avoid being thrown into the meat grinder. And great numbers of them at that time fled through this border with Finland. So the thinking now is that Putin may be planning to call another round of mobilization soon, and he actually wants Finland to close the border so that Russians can't flee like they did last time. So we can't say if this is uh, for certain, but for Russia, this scenario would be extremely useful. So you mentioned that there might be another big push by Russia that obviously is related to the war on Ukraine. You've got an update for us on that conflict. Yes. Yeah. The big story for my region is that even though the world's attention is now turned mostly to the war between Hamas and Israel, that doesn't mean Russia's war against Ukraine has ended. That Russian war rages on. But in the last few days, we have seen a pretty drastic change in weather. The muddy season has now arrived every fall and spring Ukraine has a mud season, rain, frigid temperatures, lots of mud, and this is slowing things down on the battlefields. The fighting is still underway, but footage of the roads there is uh, pretty remarkable. It's mud too deep for any vehicle to travel, with the exception of large tracked vehicles. You know, large enough tanks and APCs with tracks can still get through most of it. So it means getting men and material rotated off the front lines is far more difficult now. And of course, this affects both sides. And then the trenches now are also, many of them are just full of water, almost look like little canals. So that has a big effect on operations. And it means that Russia's push to capture the region of Avdiivka is probably on pause for the time being. It looks like Russia will probably wait until there's a deep freeze and then make a big push there. But that could still be some time off. There's also evidence this week that Ukraine is now targeting Russia's logistics more in hopes of just leaving the Russian troops cold and hungry during the winter with no desire to fight. Russia, meanwhile, still largely targeting civilians in Ukraine instead of soldiers, just trying to take out power grids to demoralize all the people. And then Putin's re-election is coming up in March. And after that, it looks very likely that another large mobilization of Russian troops could happen. He doesn't want to do it before the re-election, just because it would be incredibly unpopular politically. And even though there's no real risk of him losing the election, he still wants to retain as much popularity among his people as possible. Um, But even that situation with Finland that I mentioned a moment ago, that points to this possibility. Some analysts are saying it could mean as many as another 500,000 Russians on the battlefield. So... This may mean that in 2024, the war will get even more deadly. And all of this is happening while there are more and more questions about aid to Ukraine from countries like the Netherlands. With the new leader there that Mr. Palmer spoke about, Wilders doesn't want to continue to aid Ukraine. And even more significantly, there are more and more questions about aid from the United States. First, overall American public support for Ukraine remains robust. Certainly 60% of the American public believes we're providing sufficient or not enough aid, meaning we should be providing more. It is true, though, that the number of people opposed to providing aid or additional aid has been growing, especially in the Republican Party. It's also true that there's a small, a very small group in the House, in the Freedom Caucus, of Republicans, maybe as few as six, maybe as many as 10 for whom ending aid to Ukraine is a high priority. And there's another 25 or 30 who will sound like that small group and will vote like that small group. And together, especially as the possibility of Donald Trump becoming the nominee, the Republican nominee for the president, is pushing other Republicans in that direction. That's John Herbst, a senior director at the Atlantic Council. And he makes a solid point there about Donald Trump and how his return to the presidency is likely to really diminish U.S. aid to Ukraine, if not totally end it. Trump has long advocated for appeasement to Russia and a Ukrainian surrender to Russia. Now, it is true that more than 50 other countries are also giving aid to Ukraine, and European nations combined now give more than twice what America gives on its own. So the U.S. isn't the only factor, but it would still be a major blow if U.S. aid were suddenly to vanish. And especially if that happened around the same time that hundreds of thousands of additional Russian troops were suddenly put on the battlefields. 
So this war goes back and forth and we watch the details from week to week, but you're looking for an overall result to this conflict. Yeah, I would say, you know, regardless of whether the U.S. stops helping Ukraine or not, regardless of whether a new Russian mobilization soon happens or not, one way or the other, we should expect Russia to soon grow into a military superpower that leads a multinational force far larger than any ever assembled in history. So we should expect that because the Bible warns about a 200 million man army that will rise up. It's called the Kings of the East in the book of Revelation. And Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry has written extensively about the fact that Russia will lead these kings with Putin at the helm. So if anyone would like to understand more about those passages, I would encourage them to read Mr. Flurry's booklet, The Prophesied Prince of Russia. That's the prophesied prince of Russia. And again, a bold claim to make, especially, I mean, we've been talking about how powerful China is and how powerful she in particular is. And yet this specifies that of the two, Russia and China, which are for all practical purposes, allies, that it'll be Putin to lead that. So that's a bold claim to make, one of several in that book. So you can look at that in The Prophesied Prince of Russia. Our fourth region is Anglo-America. Andrew Miller, if you could quickly give us an update on Anglo-America. The trend to keep chipping away at America's foundational values continues. The media continues to say that Donald Trump is dangerous for democracy and therefore must be eliminated and not allowed to run in elections. Over a dozen pro-Palestinian protesters jumped a barrier into Macy's Thanksgiving parade route this week before they were arrested. And Science News is questioning why the Thanksgiving myth still persists. Mm -hmm. And what would be the main thing that you've been looking at this week? I think the main thing I want to bring to you this week is actually some big news that's gotten looked over, which is the fact that the Biden crime family, like Hunter Biden, may still be involved in money laundering activities. You obviously probably know, most of our listeners know that the Bidens are under an impeachment inquiry right now. Representative James Comer is kind of leading the investigation in there. Up till now, most of the files they've released were things that Hunter was doing while his father was the vice president, which is significant because it's money laundering <laughs> Illegal money laundering is bad in any case, but it's worse than a national security threat when your father's in a position of power like that. But under this new revelations, the latest development in the impeachment inquiry, just the news after interviewing um, James Comer reported that Hunter Biden has received at least $5.3 million in assistance since his father began running for president in 2020. So this isn't about what Biden was doing as vice president. This is about what the Bidens have been doing since Biden's been the president. $5.3 million in loans. Now, we don't necessarily have the details that those loans were illegal money laundering, ill-gotten gains like we do with the loans when he was vice president. But this is kind of like an unbroken arc since the time when he was vice president. It's highly likely that we are. I actually have a clip here of a Representative Comer just giving a rundown of everything we've uncovered about the Biden crime family so far. Well, no one's misrepresented the facts more than the White House, more than Joe Biden. I mean, if you look at uh, this investigation from the very beginning, uh, all the narratives uh, pre-investigation have been proven to be false. Uh, we found that the Bidens had 20 shell companies. We found that 10 Biden family members have received funds from foreign nationals all over the world. We've proven that the Bidens have received over $25 million from these foreign nationals, and they can't explain one single thing they did to earn the money. Yeah, so you've definitely heard right there about just the, the sheer number of loans, the ill-gotten business deals, the aliases. It's like the Hillary Clinton email scandal on steroids where Hillary Clinton was using a private email server for her government business, but she was at least using her name, Hillary Clinton. Where with these Biden email scandals, it's all under aliases so that it's not even supposed to be readily apparent until you know the aliases is that they were involved in this, which shows that there's something to hide and shows just the depth of the moral corruption that's really hijacked American politics. There's an interesting survey Epoch Times did this week. I'll 
just bring up because it's related, where they surveyed, should politicians focus more on practical outcomes or moral leadership? And about 55% said moral leadership and 45% said practical outcomes, which is a big development in American society because really all the way up till the Monica Lewinsky scandal with Bill Clinton in the 90s, most Americans, whether they acted that way or not, said that moral leadership is important. That was kind of an inflection point when the media started saying, oh, well, immorality in your personal life is not a big deal if you get the job done, which... <laughs> I don't know who's out there saying Joe Biden's getting the job done, but there are definitely people out there who are taking that approach. It's like, well, I like Biden's politics. So the fact that he's got $5.3 million in bribes his son's been involved in since he's been president isn't really a big deal. And our editor-in-chief, Mr. Gerald Floyd, wrote a book, Character in Crisis, at that inflection point right. when the Lewinsky thing was happening, just putting a highlight that moral leadership does matter and now it's definitely as good a time as any to look at that again, because the type of scandals, both sex scandals and financial scandals that the current administration is an order of magnitude more than what was happening in the Bill Clinton White House. I'm glad you brought that up. I really am. Character in crisis. That was an inflection point. And Trump editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry really focused on that fact, not just what the president had done and how he lied about it. But that the American people, many of them, even at that time, were saying, as long as you have good practical outcomes, as long as the economy is good, as long as I like the policies, the moral leadership is just a side issue. And that we say that all the time, not, not in these terms, but practical outcomes and moral leadership causes the practical outcomes, certainly in the long term. You mentioned character in crisis. Also, America under attack, really updating kind of the same thing, except after it has metastasized massively over over the past few administrations since the Clinton administration. So that's America Under Attack and Character in Crisis. You're listening to Trumpet Hour on 101.3 KPCG. We'll be right back. Listening to Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Hello, and welcome to the final segment of this week's Trumpet Hour, and one that we hope you'll find a little refreshing. All of us have just observed Thanksgiving Day, and we've dwelled on the blessings, the comforts, the traditions, and different things that we're grateful for, we appreciate. And we wanted to finish this week by continuing that mood, that thought of gratitude, of thankfulness. And so I thought I'd ask our panelists, what are you thankful for this year? Well, it's definitely easy to come up with uh, numerous things I'm thankful for in my personal life. It's getting harder and harder each year to come up with things you're thankful for within the Anglo-American news political sphere. But there is one thing I did want to bring up, though. I am really thankful for the courage exhibited by the Make America Great Again movement. And I'm not saying I agree with all their political stances, However, I do a lot in my job with looking at election fraud and COVID vaccines and big scandals that you've got the full power of the administrative state perpetrating and trying to cover up. And logically, there's really no reason we should have even found out about some of the details behind these. But the fact that as depressing as the topic is, we know that there's 5.3 million dollars in bribes going to Hunter Biden and that there's many hundreds of thousands of election abnormalities proving a stolen election is really due to a small number of people, really just a couple dozen people in Congress and their staff who just doggedly not given up on this and keep pushing for Freedom of Information Act reports and other reports so that we can actually be informed about the corruption in Washington. Because as depressing as that corruption is, it would have been very easy for them to hide this if it wasn't for just a very few courageous people on the U.S. political scene right now. Yeah, that's right. And then the fact that it is exposed. I mean, if the evil is there, if the bad news is there, it's better to know about it than not, right? Like we need to know about it. We need to talk about it. And like you say, those people who are actually, in many cases, putting their lives on the line, that is something that we are 
uh, grateful for, especially in the context of this show. One thing I'm really thankful for, obviously with this program, I cover what happened on October 7th and its aftermath quite a bit. It was obviously very, very horrible. And there were a lot of things that are unprecedented in bloodshed and like the biggest massacre of Jews since the Holocaust, etc. Those aren't things to obviously be thankful about, but they're one silver lining of it that I am thankful for is that it could have been so much worse. As bad as it was when news of October 7th happened, a lot of people around the world, myself included, were expecting a whole lot more. Hamas, as I mentioned, often has 30,000 soldiers, terrorists, whatever you want to call them. They could have used them and they didn't. I'm not saying I'm thankful for Hamas that happened, but at the same time, they still weren't used. And there has been a lot of call by Hamas and by others for other people like Hezbollah and what and some of the Iraqi militias to start pouring into the north through the northern border and show Israel whose boss has been skirmishes on the border. That hasn't happened there. In fact, Israel is still maintaining a lot of the links with the Muslim world. It has Israel is still maintaining a lot of the links it has with the rest of the world. Again, not to say that the massacre wasn't bad. It was horrible. Not to say the surge in global anti-Semitism isn't something to be concerned about. It most definitely is. But the fact that a month later and Israel is already surrounding Gaza City, that it's had a minimal number of soldiers lost, that we haven't had any more massacres of civilians. Israel has just been through nightmare after nightmare after nightmare. This last attack in October included. And the fact that at the very least, even as it's struggling with so many problems, that the IDF is able to go and do what it's doing right now, that the IDF is keeping its people safe relatively successfully, that Israelis aren't living like they were 50 years ago in the Yom Kippur War, wondering is our country going to collapse with invading armies pouring over. I think that just goes to show how far Israel has come as a country, how far the average Israeli citizen is willing to support his country, say, in participating in the military or pushing forward and making his country strong. I think that is something to be thankful for, that Israel, in some respects, is stronger way than it, much more than it was even a few decades ago, and that it's able to project this power and that it's able to have relative peace with its neighbors, like, say, the more traditional antagonists, like the actual organized states itself, than say it was during the 20th century. Perhaps a better way of summarizing it might be with all those things that you've said, but partially because of the the manhood of those men on the ground, but mainly because of the bestower of blessings, there is a moment in time when the Jewish people, just like the American people, can see the horror that awaits and have an opportunity to see how grave and how dangerous and how bad things are getting but to have uh, a chance to not depend so much on the Iron Dome and the IDF, but to realize that, that we've got to depend on something else. I think the, the resurgence under Donald Trump is, is similar in, in America where you can see how bad it's getting, how bad it's going to be. And your point is not to have your faith in, in the Iron Dome or in Donald Trump, but to have a moment, a breather where you could realize how serious things are and repent, as we've talked about on this show. Jeremiah, what's something that you're thankful for? Yeah, one development that I've been grateful for this year during this time of so much darkness and violence is the photos that have been published from the James Webb Space Telescope and also the Euclid Telescope. Both of those have been sending just dazzling images back that showcase the incomprehensible size and brilliance of the universe and just show how much real estate is out there. The Bible tells us that all of those billions and billions of solar systems were not created in vain, but to be inhabited, terraformed to varying degrees and inhabited. It's, it's really one of the Bible's most inspiring messages. And to look at those photos of the vast expanses of the cosmos with those uh, verses in mind is just very inspiring. So I'm grateful to have that brilliance and that radiance to counteract all the darkness of the world. I feel like I have the disadvantage of going last in that I had a couple of things lined up. The space news that we've had this year was one. The exposure of evil that we've had this year that, that Mr. Miller touched on was another. But I'll add to what Mr. Jacques said, and I'll, I'll add my own thing at the end of there. Is 
it almost feels like every morning, certainly every week, we're getting more space news. I think we've had more of that this year than any year that I can remember being in the news. We've got the first color pictures from Euclid just within the last few days. I'm looking at an article just published today on that. We've had a picture of the heart of the Milky Way from the Webb telescope just a few days ago. We also then had Elon Musk's Starlink spaceship test just over a week ago, which, okay, maybe was not completely successful, but was pretty spectacular this massive, massive ship. And I think that bodes well for many more space missions to come. I've got a quote here. This is one of my favorite quotes from Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry. It's from his article, Mars Landings, a preview of your incredible potential from 2021 Trumpet Print Edition. And he writes, this world is about to enter a very dark age. Actually, you could say Earth has been in the dark ages throughout man's history. God is letting the trauma intensify until we finally realize how inept we really are. In this convulsing world, we need our universe dream. We need to see the stupendous possibility and the eternal majesty God is offering human beings. And I think that's what we see very visibly in these pictures from Webb Telescope and Euclid and others. Even there was a a news from a new picture from Hubble recently. So I think that's just spectacular. And that leads me to to what I'm really grateful for this year. And that would be Bible prophecy that, I mean, we're grateful for that every year, but the news has been so dark recently. And Bible prophecy just points us to all of the light and all of the hope. It tells us that these dark times are, are only temporary and they're leading right into this incredible universe dream. That article was the Mars landing preview of your incredible potential. We do have so much to be thankful for on the Wednesday show. We said that phrase over and over. We talked about that and went back and back and back and talked for quite a while before we got to the beginning of the universe in terms of things we have to be thankful for. And so this week we leave you moving forward and ahead to the future and to the purpose of that universe And again, you can read about that in Mars Landing, preview of your incredible potential. Thank you, gentlemen, for sharing what you're thankful for this year. That is all the time we have for Trumpet Hour Week in Review. We hope you will email us your thoughts, as some of you have been doing, at lettersofthetrumpet.com. We want to thank Parker again for being here with us. Thanks also to Isaac Lorenz for production. And we thank our panelists, Andrew Miller, Jeremiah Jacques, Richard Palmer, and Mihailo Zekic. But we thank you, most of all, listener, for joining us for the Week in Review. Join us again next week on Wednesday when Jeremiah brings you the Wednesday edition of Trumpet Hour.